Good morning, church. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, Visitors, welcome. Uh, You are on the very tail end of uh, Pastor Rob being out for four weeks. So we've had elders filling the pulpit. And uh, so if you're visiting, uh, maybe come back again next week. Pastor Rob will be back, Lord willing, and be back in the book of Colossians. Uh, This morning he is visiting his other son, TJ. So praising that they made it back from Africa. Uh, If you haven't heard stories from the Trents or the other Exiliuses, I'd encourage you to hear from them. Uh, But this morning, we're going to be in the book of Psalms, as uh, Kevin mentioned, and in Psalm 2. So if you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 2. And as is my habit, we're going to be moving all over, especially today, in the way we're going to approach Psalm 2. So if you don't have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to grab the Red Pew Bible out uh, from in front of you. And if you open up to the middle of the Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms, and we'll be in Psalm 2. Pastor Rob actually preached through Psalm 2 not too long ago, I think it was December of 2020, and when he taught through it, he talked about how there's lots of different ways that we can look at Psalm 2. None of them are bad, all of them are actually good and good ways to consider. So one, uh, we don't see in Psalm 2 here that David wrote this psalm, but we're told later in Acts chapter 4 that David in fact did pen Psalm 2, and so we could think of Psalm 2 in light of David's time, that he wrote it as the king of Israel. He was the anointed one at the time, and he was promised to have a king forever in his line. So we could look at Psalm 2 in that way. We also, if you look at verse 1, it starts with uh, what we just sang, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? We could look at Psalm 2 in our current context and see that the world around us is still raging against God and against his anointed. So we could look at Psalm 2 and talk about how still around us we see people fighting against God and against his anointed. And if we're honest, we could look at our own hearts and see that we too rage against God so often that in our, in our sinful flesh, we are fighting against him and against his commands And all of these would be good, but our first stop always when we're looking at a scripture is to allow scripture to interpret scripture. It's a basic hermeneutical principle, which just means the study of the Bible or study of the scriptures. And it is to allow the other scripture that speaks to uh, scriptures that you're looking at, allow them to be the interpretation. So that's what we're going to do this morning. That's why we're going to kind of be all over the place. But when we come to Psalm 2, we're told later, as we will see and unpack throughout the Psalms and into the New Testament, that this had to do with David, yes, and we could apply it to our current context today, and we could apply it to our own lives. But ultimately, this was pointing forward to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. We are going to see that this Psalm is a prophetic Psalm that tells us all about Jesus. It gives us tremendous information of who he is, what he would come to do as it was written a thousand years, around a thousand years before Jesus actually walked the earth. But we will see that it speaks all about him and it will direct our thinking. So that's where we're going to go this morning and our approach to Psalm 2. And if you're there, you see that it breaks down into four nice stanzas, each having three verses apiece. So that's going to be our outline. Uh, It's easy to take God's outline when preaching. And so uh, we are going to ask these four questions. Verses 1 to 4, what is the result of the nations raging? So the nations are raging. We're going to see what the result of that is in light of the New Testament. Then we'll look at verses 4 to 6, and we'll see how does God respond when the nations are raging. 
And then verses 7 to 9, we'll look at what has God decreed specifically about Jesus. And we're going to see that he decreed three things, that he decreed his sonship, his kingship, and his judgeship, that he would be the son, that he would be the king, and that he would be the judge. And then verses 10 to 12, we will see what is the appropriate response, our response. So in light of what Jesus did and who he is, how should we respond to him? That's what we'll see in verses 10 to 12. So that is our outline. Let me pray for us, and then we will dive into uh, verse 1 together. Uh, Gracious Father, as we come now before your most precious and holy word, Lord, I pray that you would set me aside and allow your word just to be preached forwardly, straightforwardly, that we would see it as you have revealed it to us. And I pray for us as hearers, Lord, that you would set the distractions of the week behind us, set the worries of the week in front of us aside, that we might truly hear what you have for us to hear this morning. And may this all be to the glory of the anointed one, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so verse 1, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Short commentary, that word plot in verse 1 is the same Hebrew word as the word meditates in Psalm 1, verse 2. So as the blessed man meditates on his law day and night, the nations, the evil ones, rage and plot against or meditate, think of plans of how to overthrow the king. So why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So leave your finger in Psalm 1 and flip over to Acts chapter 4. So New Testament, you'll go way to the right in your Bible, you get through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we'll find the book of Acts. And the reason we're going to the book of Acts is because uh, Psalm 2 is quoted three times in the New Testament. Uh, One time we see here in Acts chapter 4, and it's alluded to many other times. But Acts chapter 4, the context that we find ourselves in in Acts chapter 3 is Peter and John. So this is after Jesus' resurrection. Peter and John are, uh, they're healing. They've healed a lame man. They are preaching and proclaiming Christ, him crucified and risen again. And the Jewish leaders are raging against this new teaching. The nations are raging against Peter and John. And in fact, raging so much that they take them into custody and put them in prison. And we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 18. 418. So they called them, they as the Jewish council, and them as Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then drop down to verse 23. After, when, they had, when they were released, Peter and John were released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so this group of believers now is praying, and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David... There's the attributing Psalm 2 to David. 
your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're quoting this psalm, and then in verse 27, they give the interpretation what this was actually pointing forward to. For truly, in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. What Paul or Peter and John here are interpreting for us is that the raging nations from Psalm 2 are actually Herod, Pilate, and the Gentiles and the Israelites in that time when Jesus walked on the earth. We see this historical record throughout the Gospels. We see the plotting and the scheming, the counseling together, and the raging against Jesus. We could spend many sermons, but I'm just going to take us a very high overview through the book of John. So flip back just one book in your Bibles to John chapter 8 to make this point that the psalmist was writing, unbeknownst probably to David, but he was writing by God's prophetic word about this time when Jesus would walk on the earth and the nations would rage against him. So John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What Jesus is claiming there, we probably, many of us know this, but what he is claiming there is that he is God. Before Abraham existed, I am. Jesus is claiming to be God and the nations rage. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Then flip over to chapter 10 and verse 30 and 31. John 10, 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Once again, Jesus is claiming divinity. He's claiming to be one with God of the same essence. And the nation's rage. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And then flip over to chapter 18. Things intensify in the raging of the nations. Chapter 18 and verse 3. So Judas, this is Judas Iscariot, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there to the garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. The nations rage. Look at verse 19 of the same chapter, John 18, 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. The high priest, Caiaphas, rages against Jesus. Drop your eyes down to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. Pilate, Pilate interrogates and rages against Jesus and against his teaching. It's not here in John, but if we were to look back in Luke chapter 23, Jesus is also taken to Herod, and Herod questions him, and the nations rage and rage and rage. They must get rid of Jesus. Psalm 2 verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart, let us cast away their cords from us. And we see the pinnacle in John 19, 
verses 12 to 15. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. This is the raging of the nations that Psalm 2 was pointing forward to, and it was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was a prophetic psalm written a thousand years before he even walked the earth, and he was pointing forward to the nations raging against him, against his perfect life, against his perfect teaching, and they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to cast off the bonds. They wanted to cast away the cords that were attacking their self-made religion and their self-righteousness. So, how does God respond? Back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 and verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As the nations are raging against, against Jesus, the anointed one, God in heaven laughs of no concern. In fact, he holds them in derision, and the picture that came to mind was Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you remember that account, right? They build these altars, and Elijah has an altar, and the prophets of Baal have an altar, and Elijah says, where is Baal? Why is he not acting? And he mocks, and he, he makes fun of the prophets of Baal, and God shows up consuming Elijah's fire, and this is the same way that God looks at the raging of the nations. You have no power. You have no schemes. I will accomplish my purposes. He laughs from heaven. God is not shaken. But he goes on in verses four, uh, 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The very thing that the Jews did not want to happen, God said, I've done it. Jesus is the king. I have set him on his throne. The very thing they were fighting against, the very thing they were raging against, God said, I will accomplish this. I have set Jesus as the king. Even more, more intriguing than this, just as Joseph's brothers in Genesis 50 and verse 20 Joseph said, you meant evil for, against me, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result to save many people alive. Flip back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we read verse 27, and I stopped short of verse 28. So I'll reread 27. This is the interpretation of uh, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. So Acts 4 and 27. For truly in this city 
There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Not only did God set his king, Jesus, high above all else, the ones that were trying to cast their cords had no power, their scheming, their raging had no uh, effect. In fact, Jesus, or God even used the sinfulness of these men and women in Jerusalem to accomplish his preordained plan that Christ would be crucified. So as the nations are raging, God is laughing. As the nations are fighting against him, God is even using their fight to accomplish his purposes. God is never surprised. He is never taken off guard. No plotting, no scheming, no raging can thwart the plans of our great God. In fact, he even uses the evil decisions of evil men to accomplish his eternal purposes. So now back to Psalm 2 and verse 7. We have these three speakers. We're at the third. And this is an interesting one. We have to unpack this uh, a bit more. So in verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So we see that this is actually Jesus speaking, right? This is the son speaking, but he now has this long quote telling us what God, the Father, is telling about him. So we see uh, first that he, well, we see three things, and we we talk about, or they mention a decree, to tell of the decree. So from eternity past, God has decreed these things to be so. Nothing surprises him. Nothing can come his way that will change his plans and purposes. He has decreed, he has announced this established truth of what will happen. And these are the three things that he decrees or tells us in these three verses, verses 7, 8, and 9. He tells us about Jesus' sonship, he tells us about his kingship, and he tells us about his judgeship. So first, in verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So we need to take a little bit of time to unpack this because it's uh, it can be confusing. As I studied it, I went down about 12 rabbit holes and wanted to come out and hopefully set it on the cookie shelf so we could all uh, see it without having to go down all the rabbit holes. So when we hear this word begotten, we don't use it often in our vernacular. And there's three ways that it can be used and is used in uh, the scripture. So one, in the most natural sense that we often think of, is that a a father and a mother beget a child, right? And we see this in the genealogies uh, in the Old Testament, that Adam begot Seth and he begot Enos and on and on and on the beginning. But this certainly is not the beginning that we're talking here, because we know, and we could spend time understanding the eternality of the Son, that he existed forever. He was not created or made by God. He is one with God, eternal with God. So it certainly can't be that beginning. But the second use that it's uh, talked about, and there's been some controversy in this space of the, what's called the eternal generation of the Son. And it's basically how the Father and Son relate to one another in all of eternity. And the, the most, probably the most well-known Bible verse in all of 
time, maybe, is John 3.16. And if you read the ESV, the word begotten is not in there, but for those of you that memorized in probably the NIV, but certainly in the KJV, you will remember, for so, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John uses this word begotten in John 1 a couple of times and in John 3 a couple of times. Thankfully, it's not our begotten. It's a different word in the Greek. So I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole. I'm just telling you, when you think of that word, I immediately thought of, well, it's a natural generation. I thought, no, it can't be that. And then I thought, well, it's what John talks about in John chapter 3 and verse 6, and found out, no, it can't be that. So, or it's not that. It's a different word. When Psalm 2 verse 7 is quoted in the New Testament, it's a different word. So the question reminds, what, or remains, what does it mean? that you are my son, today I have begotten you. So we return to our normative understanding and interpretation of Scripture, and we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Flip over to Acts chapter 13. We'll see this, that Paul quotes this verse 7. It's quoted here in Acts 13. It's also in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 5. So the question is, what does this beginning mean that you are my son today i have begotten you what is the psalm writer talking about so in acts chapter 13 we're now uh, moved on from peter and john and we see paul and barnabas and paul is in antioch on the sabbath and he is has the platform and is speaking and we're going to pick it up in verses uh in verse 26 and read through 29 when uh, paul like peter and John explain the raging of the nations and what they did to Jesus. So Acts 13 and verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. So a summary of the raging of the nations again. But then Paul goes on to connect the beginning of Jesus to the resurrection. So if we look at verse 30, for those of you that have been around and hear me preach from time to time, two of my favorite words in all the scripture show up in verse 30, but God, you crucified him, you laid him in a tomb, but God, but God raised him from the dead. And many days, sorry, watery eyes, and many days he appeared to those who come who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Another way to use the word begotten, it's not used often, but I think it's the essence here 
is to bring forth or to present. So Jesus in the resurrection, God in the resurrection of Jesus presents him as the son of God, as the risen one, as the king, as we will see the judge. So this is the beginning, the bringing forth. The illustration, like the illustration is Jesus, right? Rising from the dead. This is an amazing truth, historical fact that he in fact rose from the dead and was presented as God. The illustration that came to mind to me, uh, silly as it is, is the Lion King. If you remember the movie The Lion King and when little Simba was born, and it wasn't the beginning of Simba and that he was, he'd already been born. It wasn't the incarnation of Simba. But you remember little Rafiki? Was that the little baboon guy? Right? He takes Simba out of the mother's arms and he walks out to this precipice, right, over the uh, crowd of the entire uh, jungle is gathered together, all of the elephants and the zebras, and he thrusts Simba forward. And this is the beginning of this is the prince the king, the one that was announced that has come. That's what this beginning is. It's a bringing forth of the king, and that's exactly what God did at the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 1 and verse 4, Paul wrote, Jesus was declared or marked out or decreed or appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This beginning, this today I have begotten you is the day that Jesus rose from the dead and God establishes his sonship. Not that it wasn't established before, but it is announced to all and all rejoice. Okay, next he goes on to talk about his kingship. So this is his sonship. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. And then verse 8, Psalm 2 and verse 8 God goes on to say, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a truth that was from the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the Old Testament to the Davidic covenant, when David was promised that he would have a king in his line forever. And we see God here in Psalm 2 announcing that Jesus is that king. He is the one that the nations will be his heritage and the ends of the earth will be his possessions. A quick overview through the, through the Psalms. Flip to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. We see this theme over and over and over again of Christ's kingship. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, the Davidic covenant says, And to your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then in Psalm 45 and verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Flip over to Psalm 89, and you'll see why I'm hitting these psalms in a moment. Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the king's of the earth. 
And then finally, Psalm 110, 1 to 4. Psalm 10, 1 to 4. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your people. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What we see here, now flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. All of these psalms that we read are attributed to Christ the King. So Hebrews way in the New Testament. You'll get through a number of Paul's epistles, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus. If you find Philemon, you're really close. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 to 5, very familiar passage, but you see in verse 5 where he quotes Psalm 1, or Psalm 2, verse, uh, verse 7. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Psalm 2. Or again, Psalm 89, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Or drop your eyes down to verse 8, which is from Psalm 45. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond companions, beyond your companions. And then finally, verse 13, he quotes a portion of Psalm 110. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So all the, although the nations raged against Jesus and crucified him, God exalted Jesus to the right hand of his throne where he sits now ruling and reigning. However, that's not the end of the revelation that we have in Psalm 2. So if you flip back, we saw his sonship, that he is declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. We see his kingship, that he is ruling and reigning and will reign forever. All of our songs this morning, most of them are chocked full of Christ reigning now and always. But we learn one more very important factor about Jesus in verse 9 of Psalm 2. You shall break or rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. John Calvin, writing about verse 9, said this. It is true, the beauty and glory of the kingdom of which David speaks are more illustriously displayed when a willing people run to Christ in the day of his power to show themselves his obedient subjects. But 
as the greater part of men rise up against him with a violence which spurns all resistance. It was necessary to add the truth that this king would prove himself superior to all such opposition. So we see in verse 9, rather than in contrast to verse 3, where they, the nations are bursting and casting away the rule and reign of Christ, we see that Jesus, in the end, will break and dash the raging nations. His righteous and perfect rule will reign forever. In the end, Jesus will be recognized by all. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, familiar verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the Son. He is the King, and he is the judge of all mankind, and every knee will bow before him. This is what the psalm writer is telling us. Flip over to the last place I'm going to take you, I think. Not done, but just the last place I'm going to move you. Revelation, all the way at the end. Revelation chapter 19. speaking of the coming king that will judge righteously. Revelation 19, picking it up in verse 11. John writing, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like, the flame, like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on, a white, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Sovereign Son, the Sovereign King, and the Judge over all. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in light of this revelation, in light of knowing that Psalm 2 has told us that Jesus is the Anointed One, that he is the begotten son of God revealed to the world at his resurrection. Knowing that he is the promised king that is reigning now and will reign forever and the one that will come back to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. What is our response or what is the only appropriate response? Back to Psalm 2 verses 10, 11, and 12. Psalm 2, now therefore... Because of these truths of who Jesus is. O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Do not be foolish. Do not be uninformed. Do not be a simpleton or ignorant of these things. Do not be caught off guard. This is such grace that God has given us 
in revealing these truths to us of who Jesus is, what he has done. Rulers that are to know much of the world, wise men that are to know about these eternal things. Do not be foolish, but be wise. If you're here this morning and these truths are new, or if you have doubts about these truths of Jesus, I would just encourage you to dive in, ask questions, consider, is this true? Did David really, a thousand years before Jesus lived and died, prophesy his coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection? Did Jesus really live 2,000 years ago, and did he actually accomplish the work that we're talking about this morning. Don't be uninformed. Don't be foolish and walk away from this text and not consider is Jesus who he said he was. Next, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If this is true, the only proper response is for us to serve and to obey with great rejoicing out of reverence for the king. Because every knee will bow, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Therefore, because, because this is true, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to press into these truths. Allow God to change you from one degree of glory to another that you might find your rest in him. And then finally, in verse 12, our appropriate response, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. In light of these truths, kiss and submit to the son to Jesus and fear not his future wrath. So in conclusion, it's a long conclusion, but Psalm 1 and 2 actually was likely one psalm, uh, one song all written together. And if you look at it that way, and Pastor Rob mentioned this too when he preached through it, uh, the psalm is bookended with the word blessed. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, blessed is the man. Very familiar passage, and I actually preached through Psalm 1 back in September, so we talked about uh, the blessed man. And then it ends in Psalm 2, verse 12, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. When we talked about Psalm 1 back in September, we talked about that there's two ways to live. There's a blessed man that does the things that Psalm 1, 1 to 3 talks about, and then there is the wicked man that is not so Psalm 2 presents two ways to live as well. We can either continue to rage against God and against his anointed, or we can be blessed and find refuge in him. God laughs. He laughed at the raging nations when Jesus was crucified. And even this morning, he laughs at our raging souls. When we try to fight against God and against his holy anointed one, he laughs. There is no overcoming. There is no passing by. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and we will bow to him. We will either do that joyously with great rejoicing as he turns us 
from sinners into saints, or we will do it in the end when he reveals himself in judgment. So in coming to Christ and repenting of our sin and believing on the Lord Jesus, no longer raging in our souls against him, but submitting to him as king, you will be blessed. Because when you turn from your raging against Christ, when you instead find your refuge in him, we see at least two things, and we see them in increasing measure. First, we see that we cannot live out Psalm 1 in our own strength. When we look at Psalm 1, 1 to 3, and see the commands that it lays out, we know that we do not meditate on his law day and night. We know that we often walk in the counsel of the wicked. But we also learn, when we move from raging to finding refuge in Christ, that we don't need to keep the law, for Christ kept it on our behalf. Jesus did not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Jesus did not stand in the way of sinners. Jesus did not sit in the seat of scoffers. Jesus perfectly delighted in the law of the Lord. Jesus perfectly meditated on the law day and night. Jesus was and is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and in all that Jesus does, he prospers. At the end of Psalm 1, I paraphrased uh, a line from Paul Washer that said something like this, a tree never eats its own fruit. A tree bears fruit to bless others. Jesus didn't need to obey Psalm 1. He was already perfect. But he obeyed Psalm 1 so that you and I, simply by repenting of our sin and believing on him, on his substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection, may forever enjoy his fruit as we find refuge in him. Jesus is the son we are to kiss. Jesus is the king we are to bow down before. Jesus is the judge we are to willingly submit to. By turning from our raging, by finding our refuge in Christ, we can stop our toiling, our attempts at performing, our striving to be good enough. Instead, we can simply rest and enjoy the blessing of Jesus that he has secured for us. The nations, they will continue to rage Jesus will continue to reign. The question before us today is, will you turn from your raging and find your refuge in Christ today? Let's pray together. Uh, gracious Father, we are so, so thankful for this revelation of your Son, that he is truly your Son, declared so again to man at his resurrection. We thank you for telling us that Jesus is king, that even now, Jesus, you sit at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, that despite the raging of the nations, despite the raging in our own hearts, you will accomplish your purposes, and you invite us, even now, to come believing, believing who you are, what you've done, and what you promised to do in the future. Lord, I pray for each of us this morning that we would recognize in our own lives where we might be raging against you. 
where we see your command and see it as heavy or wrong and that you might break us, humble us, and allow us to submit with great rejoicing, knowing that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and knowing that you will return to set all things right. When we look around and see so much evil and so much wrong in our world, we long for you to come and for you to set things right. And we believe that you will do so. But Lord, this morning we pray that you would set things right in our own hearts. That the raging of our souls would find rest and refuge in Christ and in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.